Hi, my name is Joe Houghton, and this is the Plus One Podcast. My guest today is Professor Jackie Carter, who is Professor of Statistical Literacy and Director for QSTEP, Data-Driven Social Research Internships at the University of Manchester in England, and an Advanced Higher Education National Teaching Fellow. Jackie is someone who seriously exacerbates my imposter syndrome as I go through her list of accomplishments. Um, She's the author of a book, uh, Work Placements, Internships and Applied Social Research, which was published this year, was named one of 2020's 20 Women in Data and Technology. She holds a doctorate in computer science around radiation monitoring in Chernobyl, I think, wasn't it? Um, and a master's in computer studies. <clears throat> um, in 2020, Jackie was awarded a National Teaching Fellowship for her work developing the Paid Data Fellows Internship Programme. I think we're going to talk about that a bit more later on, which is great. Um, she's a mother of three children and a board member with the Urban Big Data Centre. And I came across Jackie um, after being recommended by David Johnson at the UCD Innovation Academy. So uh, when I pulled you up on LinkedIn, I've got to admit, I was a bit challenged at first by your title. I mean, what have, what could I have in common to talk about with a professor of statistical literacy, whatever that is? So again, <laughs> but, you know, never judge a book by its cover. Um, how totally wrong that first impression was. We, we had a little pre-chat earlier. Earlier on in the week, didn't we? And kind of discovered that we're like kindred spirits with so many touch points. Um, you're a self-described maverick who doesn't slot neatly into any boxes, and I love that. And, and your two-word description in my pre-interview questionnaire is unconventional and tenacious. So I'm really happy to welcome you to the podcast today, Jackie. <laughs> Thank you so much, Joe. Hey, that woman sounds really good. Who is she? <laughs> Fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I mean, very, very impressive set of achievements. So I mean, I think we're gonna have a lot to talk about in the next in the next hour or so. Yeah. Um, fantastic so so let's start with this one let's let's throw you an easy one to start with yeah so i guess when you were seven years old you you always had this burning desire to be a professor of statistics didn't you <laughs> oh gosh i still feel seven years old some days okay so the seven-year-old me couldn't be more different than the person you see or hear i'm talking today the seven-year-old me sat in a classroom uh, in a, a place in suburban Leeds where I grew up, I was one of six children and, you know, education, as far as my parents and the rest of my family were concerned, was really just doing spelling tests and getting a mark out of 10 and then bringing that mark home and somebody saying, yeah, that's good or not. Um, but I was really good at maths. I was good at numbers and puzzles, actually. It was, it was the numbers and the sort of thinking logically and... Um, the language of maths, I really love the neatness of, you know, doing maths. And as I grew up, that became my thing. But I also really loved stories. And so I was good at English and I was good at maths. And, of course, in the education system, at least in England still, you know, you're supposed to go in one direction or, or another. And I was always overlapping. I always had this, as we talked about this the other day, this sort of bridge building capacity to bring numbers together with stories and stories together with numbers. So um, the seven-year-old self, I had no idea what a professor was. There was nobody in my family who had anything to do with um, university. And in fact, you know, professions generally, I just didn't come from that background. I came from a very humble uh, working class background. My dad was a tailor's cutter. My mum was um, a full-time mum, and then she was a dinner lady. 
and she didn't work until later into her life. So I had no, I guess, role models. So no, I had no idea what a professor, and I came to ed education and academia late. So okay. that's why I'm unconventional and atypical, and in fact, hugely proud of it, because that yeah. is what makes me who I am and okay. has given me all the connections I've now got, which means I can bring those to my students. Wow. Fantastic. So so just give us a very quick skip through your career progression then from, you know, school through to, to where you are now. Okay. Just, just to give us a, a sense of this, this yeah. as Lolly Mansi called it, and I, I know you listen to Lolly's um, podcast, the, the squiggle career. In squiggle a, in a... career, and that's what I've got. I do yeah. love that phrase. Mm. Um, so, yeah, bright at school, good at school, recognised by my teachers as being good, but very quiet, very shy, you know, very unassuming, kept my head down, worked hard. Um, went to middle school and then high school. So I sort of did three schools um, by the time I was 16. Did well at my O-levels. I'm that old. I, <laughs> GCSEs. Yeah, I, did, I did those in A-levels as well. <laughs> <laughs> and then stayed on to the sixth form. And I was um, the fourth in that family of six kids. Um, and I was the first to stay on into sixth form. So my siblings had all left school at 16 and gone into jobs. So I stayed on and I uh, did, I think, double maths and chemistry A-levels um, oh, and general studies. How awful. <laughs> oh, I know. But again, it was the math side of me, you see. And it, it was ironic, really, because I'd done much better in the humanities at my O-levels than I had in the sciences. But I had this idea then that I wanted to be a pharmacologist, right? Because I'd read this book. I'd read this book about um, uh, drug taking, actually. Yeah. And I was sort of intrigued by the way the mind responds to stimuli, drug stimuli. So I decided I want to be a pharmacologist. And of course, I'm not one and didn't go in that direction. Um, got into university, uh, went to the University of Sussex, had an amazing time living in Brighton for three years, four years, because I ended up doing an extra degree, an extra year of my degree. Then left university, had no idea what I was going to do and applied to do teacher training, having never wanted to teach Okay, if there was one thing I didn't want to do, it was I didn't want to teach. Yeah. And then lo and behold, the day before the course started, I applied for, got onto this PGCE course in South Wales, in Swansea, where my then um, boyfriend, who became a husband and the father of my two children, lived and did a PGCE and then went into teaching, teaching maths and physical education. Oh, my good maths. And PE. <laughs> yeah, and oh, well, that it very character building teaching um, secondary school kids. And I had to teach um, girls hockey, having never played a game of hockey in my life because I was a netballer. So I had to learn the rudiments of hockey to teach this really rough group of girls hockey. And Ooh, you know what? That taught me how you just, there's no point putting on a front. And I've all, oh, my dad used to say to me, you know, you, don't try to be anybody you're not just always be yourself and that has stuck with me and I just was who I was and I told the girls that I was learning with them and I wasn't very good and we sort of built up this rapport where they would <laughs> laugh at me trying to but it was the only way I could teach them something that I didn't know and that yeah. stuck with me you know just admit if you don't know it you don't know it so learn you alongside your uh, your really? students yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so, so taught, uh, found myself um, a single mum in my early 30s, went back into education, did a master's, 
and then did so well on the master's that I was told I ought to be thinking about doing a PhD, never having thought about doing one. I didn't do well in my first degree. Um, so I did a PhD because it gave me flexibility and it was funded because it was industry-led. Right. I was working for what would be now Public Health England, but was part a quango part of government that doesn't exist, did this PhD, did well in it, um, and then got a job in a university in business engagement. So even then I wasn't an academic. I spent 18 no. years doing business engagement in a university, but working nationally and internationally. And then I won this big grant to set up the internship program, which I've written the book about. Um, and that was the turning point in my career where somebody said, actually, well, actually somebody didn't say, I wrote an essay as part of a PG cert course I was doing at the university based on somebody having called me a hybrid academic. Oh, you're not, you're not really well, you're not really an academic and you're not really a professional support yeah. of staff. What are you? So I got my head down, thought about it, wrote this essay, persuaded them that I should be an academic because I was doing academic quality work. And they put me on an academic contract. Then I got promoted to professor. And my um, professorship is in teaching and scholarship. So it's very much about celebrating my teaching role, which I'm very proud of. And then all of those accolades that you you know, read out at the beginning start to happen because I found my thing. I was a late bloomer and I found my thing and, it, and people started to pay attention. Wow. What a story. What so there a story. We go. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Let's, let's, let's tangent slight tangent you, you were named as one of 20 women who inspire others in data management last year and and and, and i'll put a link to that interview um page in the show because it's it's a really frank and kind of you know you 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 open up you there's a lot in there um and stuff but but one thing that caught my eye was the photo of you sitting on the floor next to your couch features an ansel adams print of el capitan doesn't it so presumably you know that that was a staged photo so that that print means something to you and as the, the photographer in me spotted ansel adams straight away and kind of oh let, let's uh, so what's what what's el capitan mean to you or, or ansel? Oh, oh i'm so glad you've asked that because it popped up on my facebook timeline yesterday it's eight years since we were in um california we did wow. a californian holiday in which we drove up to um Yosemite. And yeah. um, oh, I the one word, and I don't use words like this very often, but the one word that I would use to describe Yosemite, but El Capitan in particular, is majestic. Yeah, absolutely. In a sort of you know, I'm 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 not a religious person, but I, do, I am spiritual, and there was something very very powerful about being in that most beautiful, utterly staggeringly beautiful. Um, historical place but you know place of beauty natural beauty and so it means a lot to me because I was there with my husband and, and daughter I've got three kids but my youngest one by the second marriage um was there and we just had the most incredible holiday we went to Lake Tahoe and then we came down to Yosemite and then we sort of hung around there actually we were following the the rim of the forest fires because it was a year where there were big um, forest Californian fires so we were sort of we could see the, the fires in, in the distance and we were sort of just a day ahead of they closed the park after we'd been in so there's something very powerful about being in an open space like that where nature is everything 
you know and it is sort of a very salutary moment when you're in a place like that you think of people like Ansel Adams capturing um on on such beautiful you know black and white yeah. um, this is a photography for you but there's something very very lovely about that so so it's important to me because I was there with my family and also because of that connection with nature and the earth which really sort of as you can see spurs me inspires me I grew up in Yorkshire my dad used to take us yeah. out um you know all six kids sometimes in the back of a little minivan and we just used to i'm, I'm talking a mini car with a, an extended yeah. hand on the back into the moors yorkshire moors and we'd go for not exactly a ramble and certainly not a walk with boots but you know we'd walk and he really brought us up to appreciate nature so oh, absolutely. i mean yorkshire's god's country anyway isn't it so, yeah, so. yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. so that's what that means to me lovely okay well that's wonderful that's wonderful okay so when we were talking earlier on in the week you said you'd recently reread to kill a mockingbird and it had really grabbed you again but in a different way so talk about that talk about that for, for a minute why why what did to kill a mockingbird give you um, and, and why is it on your list of books we should read? <laughs> oh, thank you, Joe. Um, I reread it in my fifties. Okay, I reread it when I became an academic, actually, because one of the things, and again, we talked about this, you and I. You know, I'd read it as a teenager. I've always been a voracious reader, love reading, um, yeah, listen to a lot of books now, actually, on Audible. But um, I've always loved reading. When I, I read it, you know, I, I got the surface story. I didn't study it. I read it, so I've never studied sort of English but I did read it and it sort of meant a lot to me because of the main character um, and him bringing up his children and then growing up you know in in troubled times shall we say and then you know the backdrop of the story of uh, injustice so injustice and inequality are two massive themes I teach inequalities um, and I'm consciously aware of injustices in the world it sort of pervades most of what I do and most of what I think about most of what I read and most of what I teach um, so that, that side of the story had always been with me but I reread it because it's all about um, walking in another person's shoes and yes. seeing things from a different perspective and when I became an academic um, it took me a while to deal with the my own chips on my shoulder you know because I'd, I'd been I'd got a PhD, but I hadn't been an academic. And there's a certain mindset in academia and, and there's, there's quite a lot of elitism, I mean, in, in some universities as well. If you don't come from a particular background or a particular school or a particular discipline, you know, the, there's insiders and outsiders. So I felt a bit of an outsider because of my atypical squiggle career. But what I needed to do was to recognise that there was value in that, that isn't necessarily acknowledged, but is still important. So when I reread um, To Kill a Mockingbird, I thought about it from the perspective of, I was setting up this internship program and I'd done business engagement. And what I'd found with business engagement and universities, it always tended to be a fractured conversation. So a business would say, this is what we need. And the university would say, this is what we do. And that bridge building between the two was really difficult. So I stepped into the gap. I'd created some opportunities where we brought academics and businesses into a room, uh, different sectors, public, private, third sector, and we'd start to find those touch points, those points of, you know, common challenges, and we'd start to weave together the two and get them to speak the, the same language. And I wanted to extend that to working with students. 
So I wanted to think about, oh, and I've done, I did, this, you'll like this, I've done a mini project where I'd created short films and I called them short films, big impact. And the purpose of that project was to get three different perspectives onto research. So I had the researcher talking about their research. I had the funder talking about why they funded it. So the Joseph Roundtree Foundation doing a lot of work around poverty. But then I had the subjects of the research talking about what it meant to them. So you have these three different perspectives onto a single issue. And therefore, you had a much richer picture of what the issue is about. So I'd already been thinking about multiple perspectives. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to steal that for my for my students. I love that idea. And I mean, when yeah. they do, because when they do their charity projects, I mean, that could be a lovely angle to kind of, to, yeah. you know, get charity talking, get the students talking about them their approach, and then get maybe some of the charity clients or whatever. Oh wow! I'll, I'll send you the link. I'll send you the link. They're all on YouTube. I I created I think eight films. I didn't make the films, but I commissioned them, and we have them professionally done. So I've been thinking about all of that, that multiple perspective, and. Um, there's a lot of talking heads, right? There's a lot of talking heads, including from academia, people talking in depth about the research they're passionate about. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to make it much more nuanced and rich. So um, I reread it and thought about, you know, putting this into my book. So my book is all about from the per perspective of students, but it also talks about from the perspective of educators and the perspective of the organisations who host them as interns. So that now weaves through everything I do. Multiple perspectives, I think, is a key to real enlightened thinking. Wow. That's really that's that's really interesting. That's a that's a super insight, isn't it? And you know, given given the nature of this podcast, I, th I think that's something that a lot of people might pick up on. Because I mean, you know, it's it's firing off the neurons in my head now. <laughs> I'm making, do, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking my cogs are whirring now, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, how could I implement that? <laughs> oh yeah, I like that. <clears throat> So, all right. So, so you've 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 alluded to this paid placement thing. You've you've written a book about it. Tell us about it, okay? So, tell us tell us about this and 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 give us the story and uh, and and about you know tell us some some of the the inside stories about it. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. This is what I've become known for. Okay, and um, I'm a get on and do it person. Okay, yeah. I'm I'm somebody who, when they have an idea, I just want to sort of follow it through. I'm really good at initiating things. I'm really good at initiating things, and I'm also good at taking over other people's projects or programs and building on them you know so mm. taking success and building further success but also I really like creating things so eight years ago now 2013 um, I was a co-applicant um, to a big grant proposal from the Nuffield Foundation and the Nuffield Foundation with the Economic and Social Research Council who is the UK funding body for social research um, and the Higher Education Funding Council for England who funded undergraduate education they no longer exist they'd all come together and they put 19 and a half million pounds into a national pot for universities to bid to to improve um teaching statistics to social science undergraduates all right so te teaching data analysis to social science undergraduates so no, people who are studying wow <clears throat> okay. I know it was a big big ambitious program um and the rationale for it was because a lot of social science 
undergraduate degrees in the UK uh, were teaching students how to write and read and think, but there wasn't a lot of practical element to what they were doing. And because we're, we live in, in a world awash with data and numbers, you know, and they're used across policy and government, they're used in businesses, they're used in um, charity organisations to make cases for funding. They're, it's really important part of a student's skill set, box of tricks, to be able to graduate with that so that when they can uh, graduate, they can go into those jobs that require that quantitative analysis, thinking numerically, let's put it yeah. like that. It's evidence-based practice and decision-making. Yes. And you yeah, can't, based you practice, can't yeah. decision making if you haven't got data behind it to base on. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> Um, and it's a really important part of doing social science because you have to be able to sort of justify. It's, it's not just about the qualitative side. It's about justifying quantitatively why there needs to be investment in national programmes to, you know, level up or whatever the government is calling it. I mean, all this stats and numbers and QSSS and, and you know, multi-tab, it's terrifying. Why? It's not terrifying. It's just about the skill we have to learn. I think for most people, that 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 you know, just the thought of that is like, oh my god, kind of you know, how far yeah, can I? You're right, you're right, and that tends to be the thought that social science students have as well. So when they yeah. come to university, they probably think that they've left maths or numbers behind. So mm -hmm. my job is to help them realise that there's value in developing these skills but what I really passionately believe in is it's a practical applied skill and therefore the best way to develop it is to go into the workplace and see what the value is in the workplace and how they use numbers so I set this program up nothing you know we got the grant we got one of the, the 17 grants um, and my job was to use the connections I developed through my business engagement activity my brain <clears throat> part of my career and um, start to create a framework whereby students could spend some time during their undergraduate degree putting the skills they learn in the classroom into practice in the workplace. So the very first year, remember we had nothing like this before, this is completely novel, completely innovative. The very first year I went and spoke to somebody I knew at YouGov, you know, the big um, organisation that does a lot of um, polling. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Collects polls and does analysis mm. on polling. And he said to me, he said, uh, let's just do it. And that, that really got me because that's, yeah, I'm like, let's, that. let's just do yeah, it. So we set it up. And once we'd got that organization on board, um, and I should give a, a shout out to Joe because he, he was really the, the fire behind it that got the ball rolling, Joe Twyman. Um, and he's a case study in my book. So once we got that, other people said, oh, well, if, they, if they're going to try it, then we want a bit of this. And because it was funded, we had the funding. So organisations didn't have to pay. You know, it was um, a sort of freebie for them. Win-win. Yeah. Win, exactly. Win-win. That's in my book as well. So I set this up with 19 students in the first year. The second year, I think we had um, 28. Then we went, no, we, we had about 30. Then we kept going. So over the last seven years, because we had a year off with COVID last year, I have placed 300 students in about 65 organisations to do living wage paid I'm calling them data fellowships now because it's all about the data. Uh, and it's just, it, it's the best thing I have ever done in my working life. It's just phenomenal. It's transformational for them. It's, you know, been recognized for me in terms of my 
my vision, but also the way I've seen it through. You know, it's a very yeah. practical, applied, focused program. Um, uh, it's just, it's door opening. It's, yeah, it's revolution. It's fantastic. Okay. I love it. Real experiential learning, isn't it, at the, at the cutting edge? So tell us a couple of stories about the difference it's made kind of to either a student or to a company or, or whatever. Can okay. give, us, give us some of the inspirational stuff that's come out of this. Okay. <clears throat> so um, first of all, some stats, because I have to give you some stats, don't I? So over of those 300 students, we have had over 70% of them uh, are female. So given that women don't typically, from social science backgrounds, go into numerate careers, the fact that we've got 70% female going through these work placements is great as far as, you know, women in data careers, because we need to rebalance. We need to make sure that we've got a, a good um, gender pipeline going into these careers. And over 25% of them are from disadvantaged backgrounds or underrepresented groups. Yeah. So I'm designing it and building in right from day one, in fact, before day one, I'm building in a program of support so that students who might think that, oh, people like me don't do things like this. I completely, you know, dissuade them of that idea and say, well, what, here's all these people who've done it and here's me. You know, I've done it. I'm from sort of not an atypical background so that people have the confidence to put themselves forward. So I'm thinking really hard about making it uh, as much of a level playing field as possible. And that's why the payment is really important. I don't believe... I passionately don't believe in unpaid internships. In fact, I've been arguing on LinkedIn this week that it's not a case of whether they should be paid or not, it's who pays. Questions yeah. who pays. Um, so a couple of stories. Here's one. So um, I had a, uh, a male um, candidate who was, was very uh, unconfident. Okay, um, he was a mature student. He'd previously been a milkman and had come to university um, in his, I can't remember, 30s, I think. And, um, you know, like me, wasn't sure he fitted and couldn't see people like him. That was my experience at university as well. But I got him a placement. I mean, I, I set the placements up. The students have to go and be interviewed and selected by the placement organisations. I don't select them. And he ended up going to the home office. He relocated to London, worked wow. in the home office on this uh, project that they had set up for him. And his reflection, because I make them all reflect three times, beginning, middle and end of their data fellowship, his reflection just showed to me and to him how transformative this experience was. You know, he never would have ever imagined uh, an opportunity where somebody like him could have gone and worked in the home office. Okay, so that was one. And, and that changed what he came back and did in his final year and what he did in his career. So it opened up an opportunity yeah. for him in a way that he would never have perceived. And he used that to best effect. That's the thing. He didn't just say, wow, this is great, isn't it? You know, he then went on and used it. Another one. Um, oh, gosh, I'll tell you about... Um, one of my first students, so one of my first students, um, overseas student, international student, she came to me and very, very bright, very, very, very bright, but unclear in what she wanted to do. And she had the option of two, you know, she'd been interviewed and she had the option of going to two different places. And one of them was sort of very typically, yes, this is what you could do. And then you'd have this career trajectory in front of you and, and you could go off in this. Uh, direction but she chose the other one and she chose it because she and I discussed the opportunity to try something out 
right? Yes. And the whole thing about experiential learning, and Joe, yeah. you know, because I've told you this before, yeah. it gives yeah. you, in our case, eight weeks to to experience something, and you might not like it, and that's fine because you've learned something, or yeah. it might open your eyes up to a career you, that you never even knew existed. So in that case, that's what she did. So a sociology student uh, did that first placement, came back, put it to good effect. That person is now a data scientist in a very big global multinational organization. She says by her own admission, she would never be in the career she's in now had she not done what she did all those years ago. Oh, isn't that wonderful? I write about that. She's a case study in one of my um, papers, but I don't name her. So yeah, yeah, I, I I tell a story to my students of a of a a lady that you know I was managing at one point in my career, and um, she was an analyst. <clears throat> and one day I, I got a request a request to go and talk at a conference that we. We fairly regularly talked at, you know, on an annual basis in Amsterdam. <clears throat> and I gave it to her and I said, you're going to do that this year. And she was terrified. I mean, literally terrified. Yeah. But I said, no, no, you're going to do this. And look, I'll, I'll help you. You know, you know, these systems inside out. You, 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 you teach people one to one. But we're... so we, we took her to Amsterdam and, and she, she, she's out there in the wings Okay, about to go on. There's a thousand people plus in the in the auditorium, and she is literally throwing up into a bucket in the wings. Okay? And anyway, so I gave her a tissue and I push her on stage, and she goes out and she's standing there like a rabbit in the headlight. She is terrified. Anyway, first slide comes up and she takes a deep breath and her shoulders come down and and, and she flew. Aww. Yeah, she flew. She, and she came off to applause and you know she was she was skipping and dancing oh, all the rest of it. <clears throat> and she's now a university professor oh amazing and i mean you know now, amazing experience as well to to see how people can grow and particularly when they don't have the confidence i'm yeah. starting to think a lot more about these experiences in terms of confidence building yes. and capturing that capturing formative kind of and we are I mean, I, I, one of the things I describe myself as a people gardener, and I think we're people gardeners, aren't we? Yeah, We've I like got that. To nurture that possibility, um, and and move people to possible new spaces. Yes, which is yeah. just so wonderful. Yeah, I, I've got this phrase where um, I, I think if I write another book, it's going to be the title is going to be Serendipity is not enough. <laughs> you can be serendipitous, but it's about appreciating and understanding that you've also got to put the hard work in and you've also got to put yourself out there and make those connections and step in front of the, you know the highlight it's not enough just to have these serendipitous opportunities yeah. you've really got to then use them as a platform to build build on yeah. well it's it's gary player isn't it kind of you know the more i practice the luckier i get it's kind of like you've yeah. got to help the look along you've got to yeah serendipity is great but you putting some structures in place and doing the practice and doing Absolutely. the work more important i love that <clears throat> okay i want to come back to that first story because again this is something that we were talking about earlier on in the week and i think it's it's just a little thread that we could tease out for for a while now for other educators as well okay i was saying to you that i i've I haven't done much publishing and, you know, and stuff because I kind of don't know how to 
capture, if you like, my teaching experience in such a way that, that I can gather data yeah. that would feed into a paper or a conference proceeding or whatever. You you do this now. You've learned how to do that, and you're an expert in this. So, so walk us through, because you mentioned three reflections. <clears throat> so walk us through a course that you teach and how you gather the data and how that leads then to something that becomes perhaps publishable or whatever. Because I think there'll be a lot of educators out there who would like to do this, but kind of don't know how. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, first of all, I'm not an expert. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a learner. I'm a lifelong learner. I'm, I'm still learning. Okay. But what I am finding, I'm sort of taking the cover off what I always thought when I, before I was an academic and when I was a professional support uh, member of staff, um, what I got very good advice once from um, a, a woman who was sort of mentoring me. We were having a sort of, you know, conversations about where I might go with my career. And she said, right. She said, whatever you do, right. And I wasn't sure about this because, you know, it wasn't required of me in my role. But I did. I started writing. I started writing for audiences that I thought would be interested in what I was doing. At, at that time, I was doing a lot of work around developing educational systems to use data in teaching. Let's just say that. So I started writing and going to conferences. So that's the first thing is to practice writing. Okay, but you're right about collecting um, data, and data comes in all shapes and forms, doesn't it? So I'll not talk about courses I teach, but I'll go back to talking about the internships, right? Because I think what I've done there is established um, a, a mechanism, a framework which I believe in, and so I'm a self-reflective practitioner. You know, I trained as a teacher. I, I reflect on my own learning. Um, and what I have taught my students to do is to reflect on their learning for two reasons. One is because then they've got a record of it. So when they start applying for jobs or further study, they can go back and look at that. I do it in Google Docs now. I used to do it um, just through Word and collate all these Word documents this summer because of COVID and everything. They all have a personal Google Doc. They have a framework in it. I remind them to add to their framework. It starts off with a, after the first week, day or week write impressionistically about what you felt today. So I'm, I'm a big believer in you can only learn if you're um, exploring your feelings as well as, you know, the actions of what you're learning. Yep. So write about what you learned today. Keep it short and simple. Just tell me how you're feeling about today or this week. How did it go? Second one, I split it into analytical and research skills, which is really what the program's about, and professional skills. And I, I like take that. the frameworks that I've developed in my book and I use those. So I say the top seven skills that employers say they want, according to LinkedIn and McKinsey, are. And I list yeah. them all. Give me an example of each of these seven skills, professional skills that you've done. So they're reflecting on examples through their work placements, through their data fellowships. Um, and the one that most of them don't uh, aren't able to evidence, so it's about developing, eliciting evidence yeah. for them. The one that most of them can't do is persuasion because they're probably not in a position of needing to persuade. Mm. So 
So that's an interesting finding. So I'm starting to find something out by asking them questions. And then the other analytical re research skills, you know, are very much about the data analysis they're doing. And then the final one, I've got nine questions, and I've just sent this out yesterday, uh, which basically gets them to tell me a story of what they've done. So I use storytelling there. You know, so um, if you were in a lift and you only had a minute, the, the elevator pitch, tell me what yeah. you've done. So summarize it. And then I pad it out with sort of further information. And then I give them a free-for-all at the end. Tell me anything you haven't told me already that you want me to know. Yeah. Right? So I get them to think about the whole experience, but I scaffold it. I, yeah. I create a small thing and then a structured thing and then a much looser but also well-defined thing at the end. And then with that, I have, in my case this year, 61 reflections from students across different programs. So I can do the quantitative stuff. I can say, yeah, there were so many students on this program because we're all doing different degrees. You know, some are criminologists, some are sociologists, political scientists, people doing languages. There are all these different degrees and I can start to sort of anonymously break down the interesting yeah. patterns, but then I can start to do the thematic analysis mm. around the common themes that are coming up, you know? Yeah. Like I say, and, and I'm asking them about confidence. I've, I've asked them this year to define right at the end how confident they feel, but I've deliberately not told them what I mean by confidence. I'm asking them to tell me what they think it means. So and then they, you've got this amazingly rich data set yeah. that you can start to mine. And of course, you need your theory behind it. You know, do does experiential learning develop students' confidence? And if so, how? And then it becomes this great, big, exciting thing that you can write about. So that's how I do it. And when you when you talk about it like that, it, it sounds so simple to do. But I mean, you've actually got to set that scaffold. Yeah. You've got to th think through the, if you like, it's, I suppose it's all all surveying and, and kind of, isn't it? You, you've got to kind of yeah. think of the questions you need to ask to elicit the answers that you are looking for or that you think might come out. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, around an area of interest to you, but also in my case, I try to make it um, useful. So, you know, it's a good idea to have an eye on a journal or yeah. a particular. So in my case, statistical literacy, data literacy is very, very prevalent in the sustainable development goals, for example. So I'm already thinking about, you know, how can I extend what I've been doing? Yeah. Um, talk about this model of developing training from the classroom to the workplace and then think about the confidence building but also think about um to what purpose to what end why you know why do we want this because society needs more data literate people and it needs them in all of these different jobs and i've got examples of these jobs because that's where my students go so i'm constantly weaving things together and pulling something over here into something over here and trying to make it coherent but the mere act of writing gives you the opportunity then to take it somewhere and see if it's of value. I mean, you and I are already talking about doing something together, so. Absolutely. Uh, and I mean, right. yeah, I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm hoping we would certainly, I'd love to, so. But is this just my, me, me and my ignorance and my experience, or is this a gap? Is this a gap at the moment that, <clears throat> if you've got a PhD and you've, you've, you're in the AQ, you know range and you're you're a professor or a fully you know tenured lecturer or whatever and you're publishing because you've got to you know publish and all the rest of it you're in that you're in that pool aren't you you're swimming in that river 
Okay. But there's a lot of educators who are not there. You know, they may not be at university. They may be at school or, you know, college or whatever. But un unless you kind of do a PhD and, and learn how to be a researcher, because that's fundamentally what a PhD is, isn't it? It's yeah. just like, you know, you've got to produce a piece of work that's been properly researched uh, that, that gives something unique. But <clears throat> let's say you haven't done a PhD, and I, I've had two runs at a PhD and haven't managed it yet. Um, <clears throat> that seems to me to be a gap. There, there seems to me to be very little support on offer for people to learn this stuff, to publish, to try out well how do i assemble data how do i analyze data and put it in a publishable form you know That's the fear of going yeah. to a conference or go or, or, you know this thing of publishing to a journal or sending a paper into a journal that's kind of like stratospherically high in most people's minds that's what professors do I think there's a gap here. I, th I, think. I think you're right. And I've not thought about, I love this conversation because I would, wouldn't I? Because it's from a different perspective. But I've not thought about that before um, in the way that you've just articulated it. You know, I, I do firmly believe that everything you and I are talking about here now and most of what is on your, or the podcast that I've listened to mm. is about um, the practice of teaching, Okay. We're, we're yeah. practitioners. I, I think of myself as a practitioner. Okay? Yeah, I'm not a theorist. And, 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 no. I, I, Although I'm you need theory to be able to sort of make sense of. So, yeah. so there is a, a role for theory. Um, yeah. And that's something I learned on the PG Cert when I did it, that actually what the Academy, with a capital A, is looking for is a theoretically underpinned approach. Okay, right. so I've talked to you about Paulo Freire, you know, and the work that he's done, Pedagogy so of the Oppressed. And, yeah. Yeah. So maybe, maybe um, I think there's two gaps. I think there's a gap in who we are listening to, right? Yes. So I have this mantra, which um, I don't know if it comes from somewhere, but I use it all the time. And I say, be the voice in the room you want to hear. I say it to my students, be the voice in the room you want to hear. Because oh, what, you're not saying what? it. Before you go on, tell us about the BBC, because that was your voice in a room, one of your voice in a room. Oh, moments. yeah. Did I share that with you? <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> I don't remember sharing that. I've written about that somewhere, obviously. Oh, OK. So I'll tell you about that, because that is um, a good segue into that. So I was invited to a conference, an event, uh, a launch event, I think it was, at the BBC in W1A in London, went down to it and it was all about universities working with the BBC to help the BBC uh, use the data that they gather. A lot of that is sort of uh, audience participation data and work with academics, so a bunch of universities who were there to uncover interesting findings, insight into the data. OK, so there was this event about five years ago now and we went down and it was, you know, beautifully put on. It would be, wouldn't it, because it's the BBC and there was a room full of people and we all had a programme. And I looked at the programme on my laptop because I do most things digitally. And I thought this, the first, I think that the first and only thing on the programme was a panel, right? So I read down the list of names on the, the panel and I think there were seven or eight and they were all male, except one of them was Pat. So I thought, well, maybe Pat's female. So, you know, I've got my antennae all the time onto gender. Well, intersectionality, but gender particularly and data in particular, because women in data, there's too few of us. Uh, well, we're, we're not 
high profile enough. So the panel came on and the chair of the panel came on. Every single person was male. Mm. Every single person. This is a BBC. Yeah. So the, the panel spoke about whatever they spoke about. There was a presentation and then they all discussed. Uh, and then the, there was a floor, open to the floor questions. Um, an interesting fact, do you know that if the first question comes from a woman from the floor, then there's more likely to be an equal gender split of questions from the floor. If the first question comes from a man from the floor, then that disappears. That doesn't happen. Okay. That's been empirically shown. So I've got this all in the back of my mind, listening out for the questions. Uh, a man asks, a man asks, a man asks, a woman asks, um, and then I can't remember. So... And nobody says anything about the gender makeup of the panel. So I stood up and I thought, yeah, I was sat next to a colleague and I whispered to her, do you, do you think I should make reference to the fact that it's an all-male panel? And she said, well, if anybody's going to do it, it's going to be you, isn't it? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Right, she's right. So I stood up um, and asked my question because the mic came around and I just said, because they'd been asking about future gazing, you know, what do we want to see in so many years? So I said, never mind 10 years, never mind five years. What about this time next year? You don't have an all-male panel, all right? And I didn't say it in a really sort of aggressive way. I just said factually, you know, this isn't on. I got a round of applause. The 250 people in that room applauded me. And then it went back to the chair of the panel, who's a perfectly nice bloke. And he said, yeah, yeah, you're right. We shouldn't have done this. But isn't that terrible that I had to point it out? And had I not pointed it out, nobody would have said anything. So, yeah, it's, it's wrong. And so, you know, I never accept an invitation on, um, well, there needs to be good uh, split of genders and other candidates on panels. And I mean, I'm very conscious at the moment <clears throat> on, you know, the program I teach is currently taught by all males. We've got seven taught modules and five, I think, instructors. And at the moment, it's all male. And the optics um, of that to your students, your students aren't all male, are they? Exactly. They're not. No, they're, I mean, you know, it's probably 60, 40 women and men, but we're not. So, so what I'm, the, the way I'm at the moment addressing, because I don't control the allocation of roles you know to, to, to lecturing posts and so so the way i do it is i bring in a lot of external speakers and most of them are women <clears throat> just to make sure that we're trying to balance out the voice if you like because yeah, yeah I mean, i'm conscious of that but i mean i'm i'm probably you know i'm i'm in that middle-aged white horrible category of kind of the <laughs> aren't i of you know, the, the people that you're trying to get rid of, kind of, or, or that you're trying to balance out. <laughs> so, I think yeah. the phrase you're looking for, Joe, is male, pale and stale. Male, pale and stale. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully kind of doing the podcast and, and doing the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, addressing equality, diversity and inclusion yeah. is so important. It really, it really, really is. Because we have to, you know, both see and hear people like us to be able yeah. to aspire to positions like they're in. So, Absolutely. but going back, um, so I haven't forgotten the question. Yeah, you were you know, going back, story as well, weren't you? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think you're right. I think there is a gap. I think there is training. I think um, higher education, by definition, is sort of elitist. Yeah. And one of the things I try and address is that elitism. You know, class. Class is, uh, uh, there are very few people yeah. from working class backgrounds in positions yeah. of power in higher education. So one of the things I do 
more and more as I get older is speak about um, speak about my own personal journey. And I, again, I think it was Lolly that talked about this. It's about, you know, I, if I have a bad day, I won't hide away from it. I'll say this yeah. is a bad day. I've got invisible disabilities. So I now say to people, you know, there, there may be times when I, you see me a bit dizzy because I've got invisible disabilities. Really? Um, and I talk about my own background, which would be in today's parlance called widening participation. So that people who are in the room who might have who might be able to identify with their experiences and see yeah. the person who is at the front of the room um gets it. You know, there's yeah. an acknowledgement that we're not all a particular type, that we've all got these different aspects and characteristics. Absolutely. And I think that whole I mean, you know, I'm a big proponent of mental health and and of it not it being okay not to be okay i've i've worked in suicide prevention for 30 years um and i i make a point in all my classes well not every class but certainly every course of kind of you know saying to the students if you're not okay that's fine reach out come and talk to me come and talk to one of the counselors talk to one of your friends but don't be on your own you know reach out you'll never be penalized for not being okay it's okay and i think that that's so important isn't it especially in school or whatever where everybody's in there from the start thinking oh i've got to be good and i've got to be show that i'm super top student and all the rest of it but we're people i mean and we have bad days and we have challenges yeah i write about that in the book as well i came across a fantastic article on linkedin um and I included an extract on it in the book about if you don't get your first or second or third, you know, if you apply for these work placement opportunities and don't get them, you're not alone. You know, no. lots of people don't get them. Don't think you're the only person who's not getting them. Um, but because it then has an effect on your mental health, find places where you can get support. Support and that support network is so important. And the students need to know that they're never on their own. You know, yes. and putting them into these organisations, I only do it through having carefully worked with the organisations to make that, yeah. make sure that support structure is in place for them. Because they're mm. students, they're still learning. They are. But I mean, whether you're a student or not, be a, a rejection is a difficult thing to handle, isn't it? I mean, yes. I, you know, when I sit down and chat or counsel any of my students who've been sending in applications and they keep getting rejected and they always take them personally. Don't they? There's, and if you take them personally, they hurt because you're, you're, you're framing the rejection as I'm not good enough. And yeah. all, what, I, what I always say to them is try reframing this, okay, and reframe it that the organisation is looking for a round peg and you're not a round peg, you're a square peg or you're an oval peg or you're a, a hexagonal peg, okay? And at the moment, they need a round peg, and you're not round. You're different. You're something else. It doesn't mean you're any worse or any better than anybody else. You just don't fit what they're looking for today. You okay. may fit what they're looking for next week or next month, but you don't fit what they're looking for today. So they're not rejecting you yeah. as a person. They're rejecting your set of skills and characteristics which don't fit what they're looking for. And that... You, so many students kind of sit back and kind of, it's like this aha moment for them. Yes. Because oh, it's depersonalizing it, isn't it? Yeah, I really like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love ah. that. I get them to reflect as well because um, if they can see 
they look back and see what they were like when they had a disappointing moment or a challenge, they can build on it. They can develop those layers of resilience. You know, they they might be a deeply sensitive person and it's never going to go away completely, but as long as they can realize they can cope. But if you don't reflect on it, if you, you know, people get stuck in the moment or with a feeling. And that's why I think reflection is so powerful. That's why I believe in it so strongly. I love that. I love that. <clears throat> I know I, I'm, I'm looking at the time ticking away and I know we're almost at our hour. I've, I, 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 there's a couple of things I want to kind of just ask you before we get to your one, your, your kind of plus one. Um, you gave me five questions to kind of ask you, and, and I'm going to ignore the first three. But number four was, what one piece of advice would you give to your colleagues? I think that's a really important one for this podcast. So what one piece of advice would you give to your colleagues rather than your students? <clears throat> oh, I'd forgotten I'd asked that question. What one piece of advice would I give to my colleagues? Um, <laughs> be slightly humorous here. Can I say... Um, don't take yourself so seriously, okay? Ha- have have humour to fall back on, okay? So you can take your job seriously, right? You can take the, the teaching and the learning and the assessment seriously, but don't be so serious with your students, okay? Yeah. It's okay to allow your personality to shine through. I was listening to Lolly earlier and she was talking about, you know, teaching being a performative act. And a lot of my colleagues... And actually, I think the best teaching, and it's just my point of view, not everybody needs to agree with me, but I think the best teaching is where, you know, you, you have conversations, you empower your students to learn. It's not all about just sort of filling them with facts and information. And that's the sort of teaching I welcome and um, embrace more than anything and the very first thing I say to all of my students when I go into a classroom is you know um, teaching is set up for there to be a power relationship you know I'm you're sitting in wherever you're sitting I am going to challenge all of you to challenge that power relationship and again it all comes back to Paolo Ferreira it's about taking charge of your own learning it's, you know, and if you've got a question, you ask it. Be the person, be the voice in the room that you want to hear. Because if nobody, if nobody asks that question and it's not you, then you're not going to get it answered. I love that. And I mean, it's so important, isn't it? I do the same, you know, at the start of any module or any new class with students. I just say, look, I'm just a guy in the room who's had a few years of experience doing some stuff. And I'm going to share some of that with you. OK, but you've got your own experiences and you've got your own skill sets. And actually, the, the horsepower in this room is just terrifying. You know, so let's all let's all take a journey and learn together. Oh, I like but, that. You know, and, and that's what it's about. It is setting up a learning yes. experience. Yes. Not, not the sage on stage thing. That's so gone, isn't no. it? No. So you're, I, I love what you said about talking to colleagues and kind of, okay, so, so don't take yourself so seriously. And that's a lovely segue into your plus one. And your plus one, and I'm not going to read it all out, but I'll, I'll just start you off, celebrate learning. So yeah. this is your plus one. Talk, talk to us about this. Oh, I, I, yeah, this sort of defines me, I think. This characterises me. So I think... Because learning is all about assessment. Okay, you go to school, you assess, you go to college, you assess, you go to university, you assess. And of course, that's important. Of course, there needs to be some way of differentiating between different um, levels of learning. But the only time we really celebrate all of that is at the end of. 
right? Yeah. The end of. So the end of your degree, you get your lovely certificate and you go off and your graduation robes and you celebrate with your family and friends. I think we should celebrate learning more. So what I've developed with this internship program is a half-day event, a student conference, where we all come together. There is no assessment, but everybody has to produce something. So every student produces a poster and we have all of the posters visible in a room we invite all of the host organizations to come we yeah. have a group of um the sort of eminent speakers but really good speakers from the real world talking about what they do and then we have this sense of fun element as well where we vote for the best poster and some of the students get if they want to optionally to present their work using one slide and three minutes it's called a three-minute uh, presentation, three MP. Right. And yeah. we'll have a countdown on one board. So it's, you know, you can see the clock counting down. And on the other, it's their slide, the students standing in the middle talking to their slide. And, and then we judge it. And then, you know, we, we, we award prizes. So we both celebrate and reward. And it is the highlight of my year. Absolutely yeah. love it. The students come to life. You see who they are. You see yeah. them developing their confidence, talking about what they did. And if only we did more of that, if only we got students into a room to talk to each other more about what they can do, not what they struggle with, but what they can, well, achieve and what they can achieve together yeah. and bring other people in to help them yeah. celebrate as well. Yeah. Yeah. I do that. I do that with my charity project. I mean, our final class is an ungraded. Right. And I say, right, each team, and there's teams of four or five, and they've been working with the charity for three or four months. And I say, come in, and you've got 10 minutes to show us what you did. And uh, give us a show. Give us a PowerPoint or uh, videos or photos or whatever. And, and I bring in lights and the camera, and I, I take photos of them all kind of with the big checks, you know, of all the money that they've raised. And we invite people from the charities, and we invite wow. other members of the staff, and we just have a celebration evening. And it's it's the highlight. It's great, isn't it? It's great because the energy in that room and the you know, economy and the just um, yeah the relationships that people share with each other and students with students on different courses that they never knew. You know, they would never have talked to them normally because it's all that awkwardness. But they suddenly think, oh gosh, you you did something really interesting. Tell me about it. And, yeah. oh, and also, I get the academics. So last time I did this, I got the academics to do their research in three minutes. Imagine how hard that is. One slide, <laughs> three minutes. <laughs> yes. Excellent. But the students loved it, and you know the externals loved it because they got a snapshot of really interesting work that the academics do. So celebrate more. Celebrate learning. Brilliant. Well, look, I think that's a fantastic point to kind of for us to stop today's conversation. Um, but I, I'm I'm really hoping that you and I are going to have lots more conversations. So, but, but this is the one for the podcast. So, so um, Professor Jackie Carter, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, I've absolutely loved it. I've loved talking to you, and I'm so glad we've met.